My name is Matt Sparaza. I'm Father Sam Kachula. Welcome to the. This tangent. is definitely not round two. No, no but you guys have be. you guys have actually switched positions on my uh, screen now. You're. <laughs> you, yeah, I noticed that too. Same thing. Like you're you're off to one side now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Mark, it's great to have you here on the tangent. Um, you were telling us before what the Dove Award is. Can we just repeat that just in case we didn't get it recorded properly? Yeah, the, what is the Dove Award? Yeah, the Dove won? Award is the is the Grammy, I guess, of Christian music. And so, uh, and I was joking earlier to say, uh, I think it's weird in Christian music that you can say, hey, I think God liked uh, your album better than everybody else's this year, and <laughs> we're going to give you an award to signify that. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, that's, uh, that's what it is, the Christian version of the Grammys. Okay, right. What, you know, it, it tracks for me because I always thought that God played favorites. Right, he does. <laughs> you know, just ask Chris Tomlin. But other than that, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. What did you win it for? What was the? Was it a song, an album? What, what happened? You know what's so funny? I've been up for. Uh, I think they had me one time come on and say um, uh, I was a a host, and uh, I said, "Hey, I've been up for thirty eight of these things." And um, and then I then they would come up and they would I would be in another category and I would lose that one and then I would come up and go I've been up for thirty nine of these things and so throughout the night I'd be like this is my forty fifth one that I've lost uh, but the one I did end up winning which I'm really proud of it was uh, it was for uh, my song I am and my record which was a um, uh, DVD of one of my live shows. And so that felt felt pretty good because that's a that's a live show that people come out to and and um, and we recorded it and it and it won the the big thing. I remember that year they said, "Hey, don't do a DVD because uh, Michael W. Smith just did a DVD and it sold like fifty thousand copies or whatever." And they said, "I, I don't think it's going to work." And uh, but we put one out of my live show and it sold. It went double platinum. So that was. Nice. That was exciting. For so that worked out it well. It worked out for me. Uh, <laughs> right. So, yeah. That's, That's awesome. awesome. Great. That's really, really cool. Thank you. So how did you get into Christian music? Yeah, backwards. What's the, what's the inception story? I backed into it. Uh, nice. You know, I, was, I went to Kansas State University, and I always say uh, I used to be able to – I was in a music group at Kansas State, and there was a big music uh, building, McCain Auditorium. And I learned that I could get in the back door at nights with a clothes hanger. It would open up the door, the back door. And then with a credit card, I could get into the music room and play the piano all night. And when I finally, after that was like my sophomore year, I started doing that. And my senior year, I finally told the director of the choir that I was what I was doing. He goes, why didn't you just ask me for a key to both doors? I could have got you in both doors. Anyway. <laughs> but I remember uh, I was just telling this story the other day. Uh, I walked in one night and I had just written this song and I was really proud of it. And I walked in and there was a grand piano on the main stage, which I didn't normally go to, but the door was open and there was a spotlight on it. And they, they were having a big concert the next night. And a guy named Marvin Hamlish, who's a piano player, was coming to play. And I went in there and I just sat down at the piano and I was so nervous in the seats where there's like 2,000 empty seats, you know, and and I thought, oh, should I just play a note? And I did. And I played a couple more notes and it felt really good. And so I just started playing my song and I thought, I'm going to get in trouble for this. But anyway, at the, the end of my song, I heard footsteps coming in the back of the door and I thought, I'm probably going to get arrested. So I either need to just stop here and get arrested or I can just finish my song and get arrested. And uh, I finished my song and I felt an arm on the back of my shoulder 
And sure enough, it was the police, uh, the, the campus police. And they pulled me out in the hallway, asked me what I was doing and why were you in there and have you broken into the bill, all this kind of stuff. And so one police officer, he was pretty tough with me and pretty stern. He said, okay, well, just go where you were going and just don't go back in there. And, uh, and the other police officer before he left, he was a younger guy. He came back over to me, looked at me and he goes, hey, I just want to tell you, I really loved your song. And uh, that was so good for me and probably the reason I went to Nashville. But I had a friend who, honestly, uh, she heard my music and she said, you know what? I can see you being like a Christian music artist. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. And uh, she said, you got to come with me. And she took me to Kansas City a couple weekends later. And uh, it was to a Stephen Curtis Chapman uh, concert. I'd never heard of Stephen Curtis Chapman in my life. I came from a small town in Kansas where we didn't have Christian music at all. And uh, Christian music was the hymns that you would sing at church, you know? Right. And here I watched this concert, and I was like, saddle up your horses. You know, the whole thing. I was like, this is Christian music? And uh, sure enough. It's a great was, song, too. It's a great song. <laughs> it's and, a, just uh, a rocker. It's a rocker. And uh, and I <laughs> love the concert. And uh, I went to Nashville in three or four years. Uh, I met a youth minister on accident at a restaurant where I was a professional waiter because I was using my marketing degree from my from Kansas State <laughs> to become a professional waiter. And uh, yeah, he said, "Man, you are a nut. You need to hang out with kids." And I said, "I don't even know what that means." And I took he took I took fifteen seventh graders with me on a ski trip uh, to Paley Peaks, Indiana, and I said they were. They go, we got there at midnight, and they said, Mr. Schultz, we are so uh, thirsty. Can we have that Mountain Dew that's in the back of the van? I was like, of course you can, because I'm a moron. And they drank all the Mountain Dew, and at 5 o'clock in the morning, they're still running circles around the inside of the cabin. And I'm like, y'all, we have to get up at 6 to go ski. And they're like, okay, let's go to bed. So we went to bed at 5 in the morning. My alarm clock went off at 6, and I couldn't move. And and the lights were off, and everybody was laughing. I was like, why are people laughing? I can't move. And the lights came on. I realized from five to six, they had duct me to duct tape me to the bed. <laughs> uh, but I stayed there as a youth director. And then the youth minister was just like, hey, why don't you write a song for this guy? He's, he's just, we found out he's got cancer and his dad's a Sunday school teacher. And he's really struggling with it. He and his son are having a tough time. I wrote a song called He's My Son. Uh, they said, hey, look, um, our seniors this year are graduating. We need a kind of a graduation. Send them off into you know, college song. I wrote a song called Remember Me, another one called I Am. So he would just say, hey, we need a song for this. We need a song for this. And mm-hmm. those songs I didn't realize at the time ended up becoming number one songs later on after I got a record wow. deal. And, um, and Stephen Curtis Chapman, who I met uh, before I got a record deal, and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I was at your concert like as a college guy, you know, and he thought it was great and, and helped me, gave me some helpful advice. And and uh, so I've been grateful. It's just been a great community to be in and, and uh, just just grateful for it. So good. Now, Matt, I don't know. Do, do you know Stephen Curtis Chapman? You know his music? Yes. Because I'm, I'm going to date myself a little bit here because, <laughs> because I remember I remember going into a, a store uh, and, and buying Stephen Curtis Chapman CDs. Now, Matt, CDs were a, a way that <laughs> yeah. music was recorded and then you know marketed. And <laughs> what does it stand for? <laughs> And why did they break so easily? That's exactly <laughs> right. Oh man, you scratched one of those up. It was a it was a nightmare. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Mark, did did you intentionally like? Were you planning to be a musician, um, or was that the the marketing degree? the The goal was um. I'm going to go out and I'm going to be in sales. Yeah, I didn't. I had a roommate who was in marketing, and I thought he was great. So I thought I'll just do whatever he's doing. 
and uh, <laughs> I didn't have a real clear cut path, but I um, I had written a song in college about my grandpa, and uh, I sang it at the final concert for our music group, and and uh, my parents heard it and they said, "Wow, that's that's like really good." And I said, "You know what? I think I want to go to Nashville, and I think I just want to give it a try for a year." You know, and uh, I I remember that summer. Um, uh, my uncle had said, hey, why don't you come work on the farm and you can make enough money to go to Nashville or whatever. And I remember I said, oh, that's a good idea. And I remember my dad said, you're not going to do it. You're not going to go work on the farm. And I and I said, why not? And at the end of the summer, I said, why wouldn't you let me do that? Because I was leaving to go to Nashville with $75 and a, and a credit card. That's what I was going to Nashville with. And he said, I was afraid if you went there, you would always think you didn't have enough money and you would just stay there and you never would leave. And you would never go to Nashville, and so I went to Nashville mm. because of uh, you know of, of that, and and I got there, and I knew I loved writing songs, but and I knew was it Christian music or was I just going to write songs in general and see what would happen? And uh, I just happened to run into a girl. I was an intern at a place called BMI, which collects uh, royalties for singers and songwriters, and uh, she said, "Hey, here's a." You got to call this guy because he's crazy, and and uh, you would get along with him. And his name was Mark Devries, and she said he's a youth minister. And I said he's going to make me hang up, hang out with kids, and I'm I'm allergic to them, so I don't want it. So I ripped it up in a million pieces. And nine months later, when I at a restaurant where I was a waiter as well, in comes Mark Devries, and and uh, he sits down at my table. We had a hot pepper eating contest, and. I lost and I drank his water and I drank his wife's water. And uh, he said, man, you are a nut. And he said, what's your name? I said, Mark Schultz. I said, what's your name? And he said, Mark DeVries. And I said, are you a youth minister here in town? And he's like, how would you know that? And I go, a girl gave me your number nine months ago and told me to call you. And so it was that chance meeting. There's a million, now there's two, three million people in Nashville, but it was a chance meeting that I think God right. moved and put it in just in the right spot. And I yeah. just remember when I came back from that ski trip, he took me into the to a uh, uh, um, it was a, an old house with a with a grand piano in it, and uh, he said, "Hey, how much are you making as a youth or a, as a waiter?" And I was like, "Oh my gosh, he's going to offer me a job." So I said, "You know, like six dollars and ten cents an hour is how much I'm making." <laughs> and he said, "Well, I'm going to pay you six dollars and eleven cents an hour to come work for me." And I said, "Well, what do you want me to do?" And he said, "Well, what'd you come to Nashville to do?" And I said, "Well, to write songs." And he said, "How many have you written?" And I said, "None, because I'm trying to." make money as a waiter to, to write songs. And he said, well, that's why you're going to work for me. And I said, well, he goes, I just want you to sit down and write songs right here at this piano. And I said, what kind of songs? And he said, you choose, you just write songs. And if you ever get a chance, hang out with the kids or go to a Bible study or go watch them play football and cheer them on. And I didn't realize it at the moment, but he was, what he was doing is he was hooking me up with um, kind of like what I was good at and then introducing me to the kids because he knew I was, uh, he saw what happened on the weekend with the kids. I just loved them and I just, they loved me. And he said, if I can couple you with what you love to do and your love of kids and my desire for you to hang out with these kids. So I ended up would write songs for the kids to sing on Sunday morning. And I was just, it was just, mm. a, he kind of made a job for me. And the concerts mm. would get bigger and bigger at their church, and the kids would bring their parents, and they got bigger and bigger. And one time, a lady said, uh, "Hey, you're getting too big for the church concerts. You should rent out the Ryman Auditorium and uh, and do a show there." And she was kidding; I didn't know it. So I called the Ryman, the Grand Old Opry, <laughs> and I said, "Hey, I'd like to do a concert down there." And they said, "Well, who are you?" And I said, "Well, I'm Mark Schultz." And they said, "Well, are you on a record? Do you have a record deal?" I said, "No, I'm a youth director at a church." 
And they go, well, you just can't call up and book a concert at the, you know, as a youth the director. Ryman. And the, at the Ryman. <laughs> and uh, and I said, well, uh, they said, is it a benefit concert? And I go, yeah, benefiting me. And they laughed <laughs> and they go, we've never done this before, but they go, we're going to do this. So anyway, they they we sold tickets for like six months and uh, I gave everybody a free CD uh, with it because I thought even if they don't come, maybe they'll like my music or whatever. And uh, the record company, I told them uh, a record company that uh, I was going to do this. And they said, well, we're, we're not interested because we don't think you're going to sell any tickets. Well, uh, they happened to show up that night. And um, I remember right before the show, like 30 minutes before the show, there was like 200 people in the audience and it holds, you know, like 18, 2000 people. And, uh, and they said, we're going to hold the doors because there's two football games letting out and there might be a couple more people coming. So just hold the doors. So we held the doors for 20 minutes and I was just like, well, at least I gave it a try and I can say that, I, you know, I did my best. And, and, uh, I remember they said, we're going to start. And Mark DeVries, the youth minister walked out on stage and he said, uh, we're here tonight because, uh, there was a kid from Kansas who came to Nashville with a dream and he surrounded himself with people who were who were just crazy enough to believe it might come true. Welcome to Mark Schultz at the Ryman. And the curtain came up and the place was packed from everybody who had <laughs> bought, you know, bought my ticket and my CD. And the record company came in at the back and I started playing my songs and all 2,000 people were singing every word to every song because they had right. the CD that I gave them because I was afraid they wouldn't come to the show. And uh, they said, we've got to sign this guy to a record deal because everybody knows it and he's just a youth director. And uh, even today, when I tell that story, I'm like, there's no way that worked, but it did. And uh, my mom and dad were sitting on the front row of the balcony and, and uh, it was a sweet, it was a sweet night. And, and, uh, and I learned in that moment, when you write what's real, when you write what God's doing in the lives of the people that you're surrounded by and you tell their stories and tell the stories of what God's doing in their lives, it just connects people, you know, and people can see themselves in those stories. Yeah, so so I've got two things to say to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, three mm-hmm. things. First, that is an awesome mm. story. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. The second thing is, I now know how to get a record deal, which Absolutely. is I just have to call up the Grand Ole Opry and tell the that number. I'm running a benefit concert. I can get you the um, The third <laughs> thing is, and this is something that I've, I, it was something that I've, I've lived by as a writer, um, but have tried to bring to this podcast, right? I've tried to basically appropriate it to a different medium, which is, um, you can't pretend to be another artist, mm-hmm. right? So you have to be really authentic in what you're mm-hmm. writing. And and so when you said, well, you know, God uses uh, what you write when you're just writing for other people, mm-hmm. you know, when you're writing the stories and, and, and the way he's working in their lives, um, that's something that we've taken to heart here at The Tangent, which is like, we could never pretend to be another podcast, what? even the ones we really, really like, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and, 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 and even if, even if there are some we think are doing a better job, <laughs> you, you know? And so like that idea, um, of authenticity seems to be the direct line to good art. I mean, I guess you also have to be good at the art, but, um, but but if you're good at the art and you're fake, nobody cares. Right, 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 right. right. You know, and so there, there's a musician that I really like. His name is John Bellion. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him, but he uh, he's he's a pop artist, but he does some Christian music as well. And to his credit, and I've ta- I've I've talked about it on the podcast before. He uh, he sent his 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 radio single to Z100, and it was a Christian song. 
And they played it for like three, four weeks. Oh, wow. And I remember being like, I cannot believe the number one pop station in New York City is playing a Christian wow. singer right now. Um, but the point is like when I was a writer, you know, I was like, oh man, this guy's the best. I love this guy. And uh, at some point it, it kind of clicked for me that it was like, you can't just out John Bellion, John Bellion, Matt. <laughs> it's not it's not gonna work you know um so i guess if i were to turn this long tangent into a question it would be who are your influences as a musician right and how do you separate yourself from them although at this point maybe you know that's easier because you've been in you've been doing the gig for so yeah long. well i think you know what i think um at first you have to uh i remember like billy joel elton john growing up you know mm-hmm. those those guys um and you kind of have to father i do know who those people there you go are. Just for the record. okay good good i know Just they, for the they're, they're a little ahead of you but i get yeah good, good. i okay. actually saw billy joel's 100th show at madison square garden oh that's he cool. brought out bruce springsteen it, it was crazy and you know who bruce springsteen is too now great <laughs> no i i didn't know before that night though. <laughs> so i think you i i think you honestly have to have some favorites and then you have to kind of mold yourself as you try to you try to Billy Joel your way into being Billy. Matter of fact, I remember uh, at the Ryman to sell tickets. Uh, I put uh, people had said, "Oh, uh, he's like a he's like a good he's like a great version of Billy Joel and Michael W. Smith." And and I took people who I thought were ah really uh, could see that, but it wasn't until after um, you know that that I realized uh, you find your own voice, you know. And once you find your own voice, you're not trying to be like somebody that you were trying to be, you know? And uh, mm-hmm. now I would never put that on a one of my concert, like, hey, it's right. kind of like Michael W. Smith, kind of like this. And uh, you just kind of like to be who you are, and you are who you are. And um, you have a unique lens into the world that nobody else has. And so mm-hmm. you just say, hey, I, I just want to share that with people. And here's the thing about sharing, when you're yourself, when you're trying to be somebody else, I think, it's all about who's who's looking and are people am I attracting anybody when you find your own authentic voice just the writing authentically is enough you know and mm-hmm. I remember thinking when I was writing out of my authentic voice um, and I was a youth director if there were one or two kids sitting around the piano and I'm playing the song was as good as Madison Square Garden you know because I could mm-hmm. see the impact that it was having on them and yeah. it was uh, it was mm-hmm. like having a conversation but a great conversation you could see the light bulb pop on in their head and you you could you know whatever the subject matter was you knew that it made an impact on them as a matter of fact those songs that I was writing uh, those kids in the youth group will call me when they're getting married and say oh will you come back and play you know that song awesome. for my wedding uh, or one of their parents will have a funeral and they'll call and they say, this is my mom's favorite song and we need you to come back and if you wouldn't mind coming back and play. So I don't sing in funerals and, and weddings hardly ever except for the kids that were in my youth group and those songs yeah, were like right. uh, guideposts for them, you know, in, in, the, in growing right. up. Oh, that's powerful. That's powerful. All right. Now we've we've had the the preview like a Ken Burns documentary. You've, you've told us about playing at the Ryman, but we got to go all the way back now to the, to the beginning. Yes. Um, so you play the piano. Um, so first, I guess any other instruments. But then tell me about the introduction to music. Yeah. Like how how were you introduced to music that this became a lifelong passion for? Well, you? I think, uh, and this is my tie into the Malta House too. I was adopted when I was two weeks old, 
And I always okay. tell people that was the hardest two weeks of my life with the paperwork and everything. But I got the <laughs> I got the greatest parents in the world who absolutely have zero music ability whatsoever, you know? Even on both sides of the family going deep. Uh, there's not a lot of musicality going on anywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, but I would, I remember I would always pretend in my, even being five years old, grabbing a comb and uh, singing into the mirror in the bedroom to whether it was a Sesame Street song or whatever, and just in my mind, imagine how the concert would look with all the neighborhood to come sit in the driveway and me to walk around the side of the house to perform, you know? And yeah. so that was always in me. Um, but I didn't know anything about playing music or anything. And we moved uh, when I was in the second grade into a house that had an upright grand piano. It was too big for the people who lived there before to move it out of the house, so they just left it there. And I remember that um, I would go over and I uh, would play it on the black notes, but I would hear commercials, and then I would go over and I would play the commercials on the black keys. And cool. uh, that's how I learned. And so still to this day, I play in the black keys. I've never taken any lessons. I play by ear. And uh, every song I've ever written is in the black keys. There's a couple white keys in there that has to be. But uh, for the most part, I play on all the black keys. And uh, so huh. it comes very naturally. And that's why I just know through being adopted, whatever my DNA was, you know, I kept that, you know. That, and um, <laughs> and so I think my mom and dad have always known what to do with our other kids and and their careers, and, and my dad was an educator and all that kind of stuff, but he always thought I would be, you know, like a great in track or a football player and baseball player, and I, and I did all that. But um, for him to see me be in music and excel at music, he's like, I have no idea what any of that's about, but I'm just going to sit and I'm just going to cheer for you because I know I don't know anything <laughs> else about it. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I grew up playing a lot of sports and being a sports guy who did some music to after college, I became a music guy who did some sports, you know. And uh, yeah. again, I don't know how to read music at all. In college, a girl gave me a, she gave me a, a sheet music and she put it in front of me and she said, hey, will you play this song? And I've got, I got no idea how to play that because I don't read music. And she was laughing. She goes, it's actually your song. And I just transcribed it down. And <laughs> I was like, it's Chinese to me. I have no idea. So, <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Yeah, it comes fairly naturally. And, um, and so that's why, uh, uh, that's what got my interest in uh, Malta House. The idea of of uh, the, the care that they give mothers and the and the and the caring about life and and I am one of those yeah. kids, you know, and so uh, mm-hmm. I become a huge um, supporter of that. Then and then, as our story evolved, uh, became even a bigger supporter of a place like Malta House. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm glad you bring up Sesame Street as part of the story, you know, singing along <laughs> to Sesame Street songs because no, that's how I got my start with my, my dad's a musician. Um, he's played music my whole life, wow. but the way that I finally said, I want to do this was when I was four years old watching Sesame Street and there were some kids playing the violin and I just grabbed him and I said, dad, I want to do that. And wow. I pointed at the TV and he said, okay. And the next day he took me out and we got my first violin. Wow. Uh, and that's, that's how I got started. That's pretty and, cool. uh, yeah, that's been, it's been a part of my life ever since. And I, I look back and I go, I'm so grateful to have had music as as part of my life and then growing up with it in the house. Uh, my mom says I got all of her musical talent because she doesn't have any. <laughs> my dad has a ton. And so it was like, it was such a gift to have that. Yeah. Just to, to, to be introduced into that. All right. So you play the piano by ear. You, te- you teach yourself. Do you play anything else? I learned how to play guitar uh, in Dad Gad uh, over the years on tour. Uh, I played with some... Uh, pretty great guitar players and i'm like i want to play but i don't know how to do all the stuff and they're like here just tune it to the easy tune and just play it with one finger (laughs) and so uh so i do that from time to time and i write some songs on uh 
guitar. Uh, but I, I okay. feel comfortable. I like I love the piano because I can kind of hide behind it and and uh, I don't have to do any dance moves or move around a little bit. I can mm. just sit back and play. Yeah. Yeah, my kind of performance. <laughs> That's what I always liked about the violin, because you can you can play the violin, but nobody expects you to say anything. <laughs> yeah. Like nobody's expecting you to sing while you're playing right. the violin. You know, so I could always kind of be off to the side, and I'm doing the violin part, and like the front man can be out there doing doing his thing, and then father. But when you sing, when you play, man, is it amazing? Oh, well, cool. I I eventually learned how to play guitar and and to sing too. So very cool. Yeah. That that happens, but no, the, like that that ability to hide behind. So, Matt, when did you start? How old were you when you started playing? Uh, I think I was six. Um, I know that. So, I I guess if you want to include the first like three or four lessons with my mom, uh, I was five. But as she likes to tell the story, um, it became very clear very fast that that wasn't going to work out because <laughs> um, I was driving her nuts. She, she likes to tell the story of like coming, she, we, we had a piano in our, in our living room and she walked into the living room one day and I must've been like 10 or 11 and I was playing the piano with my feet. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, was, I was upside down sure. on the piano trying to figure out how I could use toes as fingers and uh, still knock out some chords. <laughs> I don't remember doing that just for the record. I don't remember. I remember laying down and playing upside down you know i but absolutely I, I believe remember. that you did it though <laughs> yeah, yeah i've known, you, I've known you long enough to believe that you did that yeah, yeah i don't oh, remember playing man. with my feet though all right so we get we get this lifelong love for music and and this talent that's been developing mark when did you first start writing songs like writing your own music yes fifth grade i remember i wrote one for uh tanya brown who sat in front of me in uh class <laughs> And I remember that I wrote her a love song and then I just handed it to her and uh, it got crumpled up and sent right back to me. Uh, I wrote, so it, it was a rough start uh, right there. But that's how all great musicians start. There's, yes. there's also It's not just that they wrote the love story, it's that they also write about rejection, right? That's exactly right. So I, I got my first taste of rejection. I was like, wait, you, you, don't even ha you haven't even heard the melody yet. And... Um, uh, but then I, uh, when I was in high school, I started to write songs. And I thought, man, I didn't really know. I thought uh, all the songs were already written. We just sang the songs that were already written. And uh, I had a music teacher that said, no, no, you can write your own song. There's no rules. You can write. And I was like, are you serious? And so uh, <laughs> I started to write my own music and, and uh, really loved it. And um, it was, you know what? That's funny you should say that about rejection. I, I, I feel like... One of my superpowers has been, you know, some people will feel like, oh, I've had a bad day, I'm going for a jog, or uh, I've had a bad day, I'm going to shoot some baskets, or you can also take a bad day and you can take that in a lot of negative ways uh, as well. But I remember that I could uh, take a bad day or a bad situation and I could sit down and I could funnel it into a song, you know, that mil like millions of people wanted to listen to you know, and they would, would pay money for. And, uh, and I thought, man, that's not a bad, uh, device to be able to take something painful and to put it into music. And then people go, Oh, I'm so glad you wrote that. I needed to hear that right there. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That really. And, um, and so I think I've always kind of done that with my feelings. I'm kind of like a, I'm like, a, a you know, as a youth director, kids would just say, you're just like funny and funny stories and funny all the time. And I think uh, part of what I would do is I would take the deep, uh, like the deep parts of me and funnel those into songs, you know? And so mm -hmm. that way I could kind of, in a way, you're kind of keeping yourself, you're, you're being extremely vulnerable, but you're being extremely vulnerable in a forum that is 
all wrapped up that you can hand to somebody and they can get go, oh, wow, that's great and safe and vulnerable and deep all at the same time. I've never said that out loud before, but I think that's that's something that I uh, have used. And even in my song, if people listen to a song like He's My Son, uh, I can't believe I wrote that song. I didn't. I think God wrote it through me. But at the time, I was a youth director. I didn't have a place to live. Uh, I was real uncertain about Nashville, and I wrote that song, and it was about a dad crying out for a son who had cancer. He's saying, can you hear me? Am I getting through tonight? Can you see him? Can you make him feel all right? If you can hear me, let me take his place somehow. See, he's not just anyone. He's my son. And I remember when I wrote that, it just has so much emotion in it, and I realize I didn't have a son with cancer. I was 24 years old. I didn't even know what it was like to be married or anything. And now when I hear that song, it shakes me to my core because I'm like, Mm. oh, I don't know that I could write that now that I've got kids. Um, But I could write it there. And a lot of that anguish was coming up from my life, not having a place to live, being unstable in my life. And I was funneling all that energy into that song, which ended up to people who had sons or daughters who were in the hospital with cancer would come up to me and say, hey, when when our son had cancer in the hospital... We didn't have a prayer to pray, and we would just turn on your song in the hospital, and we just put it on repeat, and that would be our prayer for the mm-hmm. for you know all night long because we didn't have those words to pray. And uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, well, um, maybe God wrote that for you because it certainly wasn't it wasn't my words, right. but uh, so it's always so it's special to be able to have uh, some when those songs grow out of your life experience, and you can mix them with with uh, another person's as well. I think it speaks to how special of a medium music is um, that you can, I mean, so if you look at like a lot of, it's not, and this isn't meant to be as critical as it's going to sound. If you look at a lot of pop music now, you know, um, it's very like me, 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 you know, it's very egocentric. Mm-hmm. Um, but music has this this pretty unique capability of serving other people. Mm-hmm. Um so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it because when it comes to writing, you know, one of the things that I tried to do or try to do rather, you know, is like, I'll work off an image, you know? Um, so like I wrote my wife and I's wedding song and there was a very clear image of us sitting across the table at a restaurant in New York city. And that was my jumping point, you know? Um, and and you're telling me how you know your jumping point is is these particular scenarios. Is there a way that I guess I, I, this is my question, or you know request? Will you dig deeper into your um, your method of writing lyrics? Uh, would you free phrase? Could you free, uh, so interesting? Yeah. So like, I don't want to be more coherent. I don't, don't want to give you an answer. You're just like I didn't even <laughs> yeah, ask that question. No, no, no. Michelle no, just so. gave me an answer. I had no idea. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a terrible answer. No, it was actually just a terrible question. <laughs> That's a terrible question. Um, exactly. Come on. Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the um, the way that I write lyrics, or or I was trained to write lyrics, was really technical. Mm. You know, and one of the, I think the downside of the the technicality to writing lyrics is it took the raw emotion mm. out of it. You know, mm-hmm. so I guess what I'm saying or what I'm asking you is, you know, how do you write your lyrics beyond just like, well, I've got this jumping point, right. you know, like what's what it what what amount of technicality remains, you know, so you can assure yourself that it is, in fact, a good song, you know? Yeah, um, I think the technicality for me comes in the second half. The first half is okay. uh I'll sit at the piano and I'll just play chords that I've played a million times, but all of a sudden a melody idea will come out 
And uh, uh, I remember I was writing one night this thing, and I was just playing because I think when emotion hits, and then I heard one songwriter say this really well. She said, uh, when the melody and the words come out at the same time and they work, that's pure gold mm-hmm. because then you've got something to work mm-hmm. with. And um, and so one night I was writing, uh, just messing around, and I and I hit this thing where I started singing, before you call me home, before you call me home. And it was just from the gut, and it was every when it came out, I just felt like, oh my gosh, that feels so good. And I stopped, and then I was just like, what is that? And what is that? I have no idea what that is. And um, the more I, I wrote about it, I was writing, I went to a... Um, a funeral of one of my uh, friends whose dad passed away, and they were talking about what a great life he lived and what a great man he was. And I thought, oh, man, I want to be that kind of man. And Before You Call Mm -hmm. Me Home turned into uh, I want to be the man who uh, builds my children up, uh, who uh, loves my wife so well. And if I haven't been that guy, Lord, let me start right now before you call me home, before you Mm -hmm. call me home. And sometimes you get the magic and then you have to wait for the technical of now I've got to put it together. And I've got a friend of mine who's a a songwriter in Nashville. He's not great at the part that just comes out. Uh, He's the technical guy. And so sometimes I'll have to go to him and I'll go, here's the thing that just jumped out of me. And he goes, I could never do that and get that hook that you just did. But we're going to now we're going to get in it. And we're going to drive our way and find out what that song's about and, and put yeah. it together. So mm-hmm. sometimes it takes a couple uh, people to, to kind of to, to do that. And, um, but for me, I just, it's all emotion. It's all emotion. And, and I feel like um, nobody's ever going to say, Mark, I love your songs due to the technicalities of what you do. They're not going to do that, but they're going to say, oh, man, when I heard the melody with the words and the motion that you're getting, I just got sucked into the song. That's, I think that's, uh, that's what I do, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as a songwriter, do you, do you find that you're approaching it as like, I'm trying to write a Christian song or are you, I'm writing a song and then there's going to be this unmistakable way that my faith has influenced what I'm, what I'm writing. And I ask that because I've tried writing songs a couple of times. I'm bad at it, mm, mm. like really bad at mm-hmm. it. Uh, every time I've tried to write a song that's supposed to be like on that Christian Catholic perspective of things, it just, everything about it, I finish the song and I, I play it and I go, everything about this feels forced. Mm. It feels fake. Mm. It's just, it's not working. I'm really good at writing parody songs. You give me like Weird Al Yankovic yeah. and I can do what Weird Al does. Sure, sure, uh, sure. I will, but it, it's got to be about something that I actually care about to like make it funny. Weird Al can write about anything. He's just gifted. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> my musical influence, Weird Al Yankovic. Anyway, do you find like, that the way that you're approaching songwriting is to write Christian music, or is it that you're writing songs from the heart, you're writing songs that mean something, and it just so happens that your faith is is part of it and, and can't be taken out? Yeah, I think it's both. I think that uh, as a youth director, when um, when they would come to me and they would say, "Hey, we're having a we're having communion on Sunday. Can you write a song that would go with communion?" You know, then I've got an alley to to go down and I'm going to write something uh, that's going to feel very, um, you know, it's, it, it's going to be the experience of communion. And it's so it's very focused that way. But I think one of the great things about writing uh, stories about people is I might, here's an example. My first neighbors, when I was in that, when I lived in Nashville, 
Henry and Liz, Liz grew up with Minnie Pearl off of Hee Haw. They were best friends growing up. Oh, wow. And I just loved to hang out with them. And they were 85 years old. And I would go sit on their front porch and we'd have dinner. And then after we just sit, drink sweet tea and sit on their front porch every single night for like nine months, my first nine months. And I love these people. And so I wrote him a song called uh, Walking Her Home because they it was their first date and he was walking her home. And then the next verse is about um, uh, their first baby and as she's uh, holding the baby and she falls asleep in the hospital, he's looking at the baby, he's looking at her, and he's thinking about the first night that he walked her home, and he can't believe that this is what's happened since then. And then I yeah. got stuck, and I was like, oh, no, now what do I do, you know? And then I've got him in a nursing home, and I'm just – I remember I was at the church, and I was just walking in circles in, inside the fellowship hall going, "Where? what happens with this song? And sure enough, uh, after about 6,000 uh, circles around the fellowship hall – I come up with, oh my gosh, uh, she's she's in bed and it's her last night and they come in to check on her and uh, he's made his way from his room down to her room and he's crawled in bed with her and he's walking her home, you know? Wow. <laughs> it gets me right now. Then you just take that and you go, okay, I didn't see that coming, but that's a great way for him to, to, to end that song, you know, is because yeah. he's... He's not, you know, I, I say when I'm explaining the story, here's a guy who promised her father he was going to walk her home because it was his it was his father's only daughter. And he's saying, you can walk, you can take her to the movies, you can take her home, promise me you're never going to leave her side. And as you get to the end of the song, you go, oh, when he promised her father he was going to walk her home, he wasn't talking about from the movies. He was talking about until he handed her back in the arms of God. So sometimes it's mm. happy accidents and you just keep building and you keep building and you just go, oh, man. What a great ending. And it, it 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 takes your it takes real life and then it bends the faith into it right at the very end where you go, Oh, look, I couldn't have planned that out at the beginning or you would have seen that one coming. And to play it in front of a, you say in uh, I went to play it in Nashville for at Belmont for a bunch of songwriting students and I didn't we didn't tell them what was coming and they're really intent on how to write a song and I got to the very end and I played that and eyes went backwards and people <laughs> I still remember pencils flew through the air and they're like, oh my gosh, we didn't see that coming. But it was like the greatest way to end a song, you know? And so, uh, again, if you take real life and make art out of it, I think you get great art. That's what I think happens. Yeah. Wow. All right. So the, I've got two songwriters here in front of me. Um, how do you know, guys, when you've got a good song? I, I want to hear both of you and and how that how that happens. Like you sit down, you spend time, you craft the song. How do you know it's a good one? How do you know it's one that you want to share with people? Yeah. You want to go, Matt? Yeah, I can go first. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, so the one that came, came to my mind was um, again. So I wrote, I wrote my wedding song, but I also wrote the song that I, I did um, the mother son dance with. Um, and the way that I knew it was a good song. Well, I, I guess it was like I knew and then it was affirmed was that when I wrote it, I got really emotional. Mm. Um, and then when I didn't play it, I, we recorded it and then obviously I danced to it because it's a mother son dance. Um, everyone else got really emotional, you know? And so yeah. the, the, the name of that song is my first best girl. Mm. And so it's moving on from my mom to my mm. wife, you know, because I'm an Italian and that means I'm obligated to be a mom. <laughs> 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 but, uh, 
but so so I guess the the raw emotion, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. which of course is exactly what Mark has been saying for the last thirty minutes because he's the professional. Oh uh, no, that sounds right. That sounds right That's to good. me. Okay, I yeah. can't write. I can't work on a song unless I feel like I want to sing this song for the next twenty years. I just can't. There's oh, something inside yeah, okay. of me that just goes, I'm not going to put the time in it. If I just can't, if I'm working on a song that I just think is just going through the motions, I just don't have it in me. But if I start working on a song and it won't let me go and it just keeps pulling me to the piano and I just go, okay, even if nobody else wants to hear this, I'm going to play this all the time because I just love it. Those end up being the songs everybody wants to hear. And even if I'm two words from a song being great, and I just, I just, I can't let it go. And I remember once, once I get those two right words in there and I, I wrote a song for my wife's dad. Um, it was called Different Kind of Christmas. It was on my Christmas, uh, first Christmas record. And um, I pull, I finally got those two words and I ran out of the chapel where I had all my songs that Mark DeVries took me to and said, here's your piano, write songs. I ran out and I saw a lady on the sidewalk. I didn't even know who she was. I said, you've got to come hear this song. She didn't know me at all. <laughs> And, uh, but I'm just so excited. And she comes in and I play her the song and she sits there and tears run down her eyes. And she goes, I need to send this song to my, uh, to my best friend as soon as she, let's just record mm-hmm. this now. So we can send it to her. And that is just like knowing you like, it means so much wow. to me that it means something to you is really yeah. great. You've heard it one time and you want to send it to your friend. That's really great. And so I think it's the yeah. same thing when you just feel it and you just go, gosh, it's like a t- like a tuning fork. You hit it and just and it just rings. When you get a great song, you just yeah. it, it just reverberates in you. Yeah, my dad would always say that he knew that he had a decent song if me and my brother were like whistle it or kind of like hum different lines to it because he'd be playing in the in the living room and working on a song and if if we started kind of singing along to it or or whistling it like privately, he like he would notice and he'd hear that. But he said he really knew if my mom was kind of talking about it or, or mm. like humming on. Cause my mom can't do that. She can't hold a tune, yeah. but if, if something struck her and she, and she was with it, like that would always be kind of that, that sign. Of course, my mom would also say that people would say, it must be so nice. You've always got music in the house. Cause you know, your, your husband, your son, they play music. And she would say completely seriously, Oh, I don't even hear it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she just learned to block it out. You know, they're working. All right. Yeah. Now, you write music, mm-hmm. you write the songs, and then comes the performance element. Mm-hmm. For you guys, what do you prefer? Do you prefer the performance? Do you prefer the writing process? How do you bridge the gap between writing and performing? I know you talk about sitting at the piano so you don't have to dance or do anything like that, but what's it like to, to make that shift from I've written this to now I'm going to perform it? And like you said, Mark, I want to sing this for the next 20 years. Well, you're singing it for the next 20 years because it's going to be performed and you're going to be doing that. Yeah. Um, if you're just cranking out songs left and right, uh, there's obviously always a need for that too. That's what Nashville is. But um, what's it like to bridge that gap from songwriting to performing and which process do you prefer? Yeah, that's easy for me. But Matt, you go ahead. Uh, so I, I, I love both. Um, I think that it's, so it's been a while since I performed like under my own name, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right, so the last couple of years has been mostly playing praise and worship, you know, in different various different settings. But, but usually when I'm doing that, I'm like not really trying to. I don't know. I'm not really trying to like perform per se. You yeah, know? that's like, that's like leading worship. It's a it's a right, different sort of Right, you're trying to feel. help people pray. I'm not I'm yeah. not bouncing around, which is what I do when I perform. So I I do like to play keys while I while I perform, but. 
if I had like my preferred ratio, it would be like 80% not playing mm. and 20% playing. You ever tried um, a keytar? <laughs> no, I haven't tried a guitar. I haven't tried a guitar. Um, Mark, guitar? Any, any interest in the guitar? Has, has never played a vital role in my life. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Any major guitar um, players who have influenced you? Not <laughs> even. Hopefully. Are there any major guitar players? <laughs> I don't know. In the 80s. Do you have. Sure. Yeah, do you have a, a piano key necktie that you can wear? No, but that, yeah, that yeah. sends me off in a few directions of ideas for yeah. Christmas gifts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so I like to, I, I definitely love to perform because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a massive extrovert as it is. Mm-hmm. And so if you put me on a stage in front of people, it just kind of like raises me to the max here, you know? Um, and I just start bouncing around. I just start bouncing around. If there were things to climb, I would climb them. Okay. Know? So, yeah, I think that's right. For me, uh, writing songs is like putting in the time for a marathon, you know, every day, just getting out there and running and running. Even when we don't feel like, oh man, now it's the technical part. I've just got to figure this out. Right. Man, being on stage and performing to me, there's nothing better. And, um, especially songs that I've just have written and I get to play for the first time in front of people. Oh my gosh. Mm. It's so good. And matter of fact, I, uh, I love playing songs that aren't done uh, for an audience just to get just to gauge it, you know. And if a song, if I play half a song and it gets a standing ovation, I go, "We are onto something here. This is really great." Right. And uh, so that's that's happened a few times. And um, I love performing and and writing yeah. as a way to get those songs to to, to perform. Yeah. And my wife will, uh, you know, when I come home, uh, she'll say, uh, "I know you're out doing a concert because you came home and you're day after you're still on a ten. Like my energy's still at a ten, and as <laughs> three the next day and the next day my energy starts to drop, and I'm like, uh, why is nobody clapping for me? I'm I'm doing the dishes and nobody's clapping. Why is this? <laughs> this is so hard for me. And she's like, welcome to my world. I I do the dishes every day. And nobody claps. So that's great. I I like being in in the audience when there's a new song. Um, I, I have not gone to a, a whole lot of major concerts in my life growing up. My, my dad's a folk musician, so a lot of folk venues, a lot of like smaller things. But I had a chance uh, maybe five years ago, I went to an Avett Brothers concert. Oh, yeah. And uh, they debuted a song that night. And um, I can't remember the name of the song now. It was my first time seeing them live. And they're just, the Avett Brothers are phenomenal yeah. as, a, as a performance band. Yes. They just, they kill it. But they debuted this song. They, they opened the show with this brand new song and it killed. It was, it was awesome. And people are sitting there just, this is new. Like people who have listened to the band for a long time, this is a new song, this is a new song. And then they announced, this is the first time we ever played this in public. Wow, like, wow, wow. They got a standing ovation like at the right. start of their concert. Oh, that's a nice way to start off. they never played before. It was awesome. Oh, that's really yeah. cool. That's really yeah. cool. For sure, Mark. What's uh, what what was the best concert you've ever been to? Mm, the best one I've ever been to. Oh man, not including your okay. own. Uh, <laughs> oh man, you know what? I don't know. I I here's the thing. I haven't been to a lot of Christian concerts because uh, I'm usually backstage when they're happening, like yeah. if we're at an uh, event. So I haven't seen a lot of those. But um, I saw uh. One that I thought was really cool was a Coldplay concert we went to uh, a few years ago. And I thought it was really, I thought it was really unique what they did before they would play one of their hits. I just think this is so interesting. Before they would play a humongous hit, uh, they would play some obscure 
song first that you you didn't have any connection with whatsoever. And I realized after I was watching it why they did it because it was like they're playing their hits and then all of a sudden they go to an obscure song you didn't know and it kind of gets you off balance. So when they come down and hit the first note of their big hit, everything within you just runs to it and go, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard because you were off balance and now you've come home to their big hit, you know? And uh, and I thought that was really great. But just the the, you know, the lead guy there playing the piano out there in the middle of everybody mm. by himself was just is is really wonderful. Mm. How about you, Father Sam? Uh, like I said, I've I've not I've not been to a, a whole ton, but I've seen James Taylor play. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, live a bunch of times. And I was right, right. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, he came to Rome, and he he was doing the it was the one man band tour that he did and he came to Rome and it was like every expat American in the entire city and all of Italy had shown up in Rome for this concert and it was packed. And then it was packed with Italians and he had these cue cards that he'd written out phonetically how to say things in Italian. And so the Italians went bonkers every time he said something in Italian. We left after his third encore because the last bus back to where we needed to get was going to come through um, in like 10 minutes and we didn't want to miss it because otherwise we'd be really stuck. So we, we leave and, and as we're waiting outside for the bus, he did three more encores. The bus was late because welcome to Rome. Um, but like the guy, he just the kept bus getting- bus driver was at the James Taylor concert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he kept getting called out for encore after. I mean, we could hear the crowd wow. outside the venue. It was- it was just awesome. And to to listen to this guy, I mean, at that point, he was, I mean, he had to have been in his late 50s at that point, I think, maybe even 60. Mm-hmm. And his voice was as strong as ever. Yeah. The And the lyrics, I mean, he, he talks about um, uh, these folks who come out to pay good money to, to hear fire and rain again and again mm-hmm. and again. That's why I'm here, mm-hmm. you know. And he's still singing it like it's the freshest song that he's ever written. Yeah. And that just blew me away. Yeah. Like you said, Mark, he's playing that song for 20 years, 30 years, right. probably 50 years at this point. Yes. And it just it just holds its freshness. Yeah, so. yeah there's no doubt. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. that's a great one. All right, let's take this love for performing, Mark. And now take me to the Ryman. Okay, gotcha. Because the Ryman Auditorium is a legendary place. Was it the, the new Ryman or was it the old Ryman? Old Ryman. Like, I, I'm, oh, Whoa, the the ridge. Man. Okay, so what's it like to find your way into playing on that stage where every big name in country music has ever played before, a place that is is sacred ground to American music? What's that like getting on that stage and performing? Uh, It's really uh, amazing to... First of all, to be in the building. Second of all, to be in there to see a show and to see people who you look up to. And, you know, Elvis was in there. I mean, the biggest of the big. Uh, so you walk in and there's people who are guarding the exits so you can't get backstage or what are, you know, like ticket takers and that kind of stuff. And so you see them. And if you get too close to them when you're, you know, in another show, even if you're just getting out of some move, they'll like, oh, back, back away and, and all this kind of stuff. It feels so strange to be there to walk through those doors and then the ticket people and the people who are guarding the doors are just like, oh, Mr. Schultz, come on through. You know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is going on? And you get backstage and the people back there are so kind to you and they, you're the guy, you know, you are now the guy mm-hmm. that's putting on the show and uh, you almost pass out. Honestly, it's really, really great. Uh, but I think to come out on stage for the first song and be surrounded by the people that you've loved and have written songs about, like every song you've written is about the people who are in the audience. Now that is 
amazing. Playing at the Ryman is amazing, but I'm I'm playing songs that I've written for all these people who are on the front rows and up in the balconies, mm-hmm. and I'm talking mm-hmm. and I'm telling their stories and I'm playing. And it's like a big warm hug. And there's not, it's honestly, you could play in there without all the sound equipment. That whole place was meant to be uh, a concert hall without having any speakers or anything. So you can just sit yeah. down on the front row or you can just sit down uh, where Elvis was standing and play and everybody would be able to hear just fine, you know? And so it's an out-of-body experience. It really was. And one I'm so grateful for him. I remember my dad, when he first came to town, my mom and dad, when I was still a waiter across the street from the Ryman, I took him on a tour and I realized how it took me five years to get to to play at the Ryman. But I remember my dad standing next to me in the parking lot of the Ryman with his arm around me. And he said, is this where my son's going to play one day? And my heart broke because I was like, dad, you got to be. The, you got to be at the top of your game to play at the Ryman. Nobody just gets to play at the Ryman or whatever. And he said, no, I think my son's going to play at the Ryman one day. And so five years later, fast forward, the curtain goes up and I'm standing there and my mom and dad are sitting on the front row of the Ryman. Oh, man. You know what? It doesn't get any better than that. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really great. So, That's amazing. And I will say this. Let me just say, as great as that was, because I love stories and I'm a storyteller, and um, because of the Malta house uh, coming to, uh, uh, I want to say this, because um, there's been a few highlights in my life, and, and these are, number one, getting adopted by the parents, the, the dad who would sit in the audience and go, uh, I knew you would play here, you know? And because yeah. of that, uh, and a Henry and Liz who showed up for me and fed me every night for nine months. And I and I remember my wife saying, uh, I think the reason your mom and dad uh, loved you so well and Henry and Liz loved you so well is because they loved a God who loved them first and they were just mirroring to you what God had already done for you. And, and, and my wife's like, I think we should do that as well. And so uh, seven, gosh, it's been nine years now. Uh, we went to China and adopted our first daughter from China and awesome. uh, Maya May. And then because my wife loves good stories as much as I do, um, we adopted our second daughter, who's just now f- um, seven years old. Uh, no, uh, she's five and Maya May seven. Uh, Ebby Lou came from the same uh, town, the same uh, state and the same adoption agency that I came from, and just like my parents who walked uh, up the steps into a room to see a baby two weeks old in a crib, uh, looking at them, uh, and they decided to adopt that baby, which is me. We did the same thing to a little girl as a tip of the hat wow. to my birth mom who chose life for me, as a tip of the hat to uh, my mom and dad who adopted me. And so uh, it's living that 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 full mm-hmm. circle moment, and uh, so it inspires me to go, oh man, I get to do what I love. I get to perform and I get to sing and write these songs that mean things to people. Uh, But there's this other aspect of my life that also feels like we're putting together a song, you know, and we're taking real life and we're creating art out of it as well. And it feels like we've, we've created some art out of our own story. So I'm excited about that. That's awesome. Uh, Mark, listen, this is, this is great. I mean, we could probably talk for hours about this stuff and just keep going, but We've got to respect your time. <laughs> we want to let you go. But thank you so much. Um, March 15th, 7 p.m. at the Quick Center for the Performing Arts at Fairford University. Mark Schultz is doing his benefit concert for Malta House of Good Counsel. We've got the link to it in the show notes. Check it out, Mark. Um, thanks so much for making the time for us today. This is great. Thank you so thank much. You. This has been a lot of fun. And let me say, Father Sam, 
you look like the ideal father, just with your beard and the whole thing. You look like the real deal, and it is so fun to 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 see this. So, and uh, and Matt, your your love of songwriting and keep up the great work, and and I know you'll be great at it. It's just, if you write authentically, it just kind of happens to just work out. Amen. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. It would have been pretty funny if I had kept singing and not realized we had started recording. I'm I really, really glad I looked up. I really wish I had noticed sooner that I had a record button too, because <laughs> man, I would have, oh, that would have been great. Yes. I was singing poorly and writing mediocrely. <laughs> yeah. Well, we start with the mediocre and aim for the good. That's <laughs> right. That is right. All Grace right. builds upon nature. <laughs> Grace builds on my mediocrity. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. Okay. Matt, that was just awesome talking to Mark. Uh, what a guy. It was, yeah, it was special. Yeah. Um, it was special. I mean, especially, you know, for the two of us being the musicians we are, you know, uh, and having such a real and deep personal, you know, interest in what he does for a living. Yeah. You know, like from like I love I love songwriting, you know, so I, I was so happy to get to talk to someone who's done it and done it well and done it for the Lord and like really cool. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. I would say like listen to listen to musicians talk to athletes and how the musicians are in awe of what the athletes can do. And then listen to the mm-hmm. athletes respond to the musicians and how they're in awe of what the musician does. It's the same kind of idea. You've got Mm -hmm. a huge crowd of people. You're performing in front of them. You're doing something in front of them that, quite frankly, most of the people in that crowd can't do. Mm -hmm. Or they used to be able to do but have lost the ability. Or they they wish they could do it and you get to do that, but you're doing it for them. And there's a little bit of a difference, I think, with with the athlete in that you're competing. So you're trying to win something both for yourself or for your team. Uh, And then whereas a, a musician... Is, is doing this for the sake of entertaining others, mm-hmm. right? And there, so there's a relationship that the musician has with his audience that is is unique, maybe a little bit different than the relationship that an athlete has with the fans that has to develop maybe over, I don't know. But anyway, I'm just- Although it, admittedly, you know, um, so my brother-in-law who, who happens to, he's a musician, uh, he's more of an athlete than a musician, but he okay. does both, you know? Yeah. Um, but he played baseball uh, and he played up to the college level, and he used to tell me one of his favorite things to do was to play in an entertaining way. He would go out of his way to entertain while playing yeah. ball, and I always thought that was really cool so that he could bridge that gap somehow. Yeah. Now, if you had ever met my brother-in-law, shout out to Andrew, um, you wouldn't be surprised that he is capable of entertaining and playing ball at the same time, because okay. he also happens to be one of the most entertaining people I've ever met. That's awesome. So, <laughs> That's he awesome. gives even you a run for your money. Hey, him. thanks. All right, so I got to talk. We got to talk to him about the Ryman. Um, what's the What's the coolest place you ever got to perform? Uh, so I'm gonna go two two ways with this. The first one, as a musician, like under my own name, I was the headliner. Was a venue called Exit Inn at okay. Nashville, in Nashville rather. Um, and admittedly. I got to play at Exit Inn because I was supposed to play at the venue they own across the street that's smaller, um, and they accidentally booked me for the big guy. Um, but awesome. I was stoked about that, so it was cool. It was fun, um, yeah. and and we we got enough people in the room, you know. Yeah. So it was it was cool. Um, the best place, my favorite performance 
period, I think, or, or it might just be that it's the most recent, was not like two weeks ago, I got to play Catholic Underground. Cool. Um, and so I was uh, in the band with some of the Franciscan friars, and uh, there's like 700, 800 people packed in this church in New York City. And we had to use in-ears, so I felt like a rock star. Yeah. And... And, you know, everybody's singing and adoring the Lord who's on the altar. And there were points where Brother Damien, who was leading the praise and worship, would go, okay, everybody, just voices. And then like 800 people so would cool. just start singing this praise and worship song. Yeah. You know, and this and this church built to have unbelievable acoustics, yeah. you know? All right, real quick, just just so. for people who don't do much performance, what what is the in-ear? Let's make sure we, we it's define the, it's our terms. It's the... Uh, how do you describe it? It's the it's the earphone that goes in your ear, but more importantly, it's that it blocks out all outside sound. Yeah. So you can only hear what is being sent to you by the audio engineer, uh, which is your other band members. Did you get to do that thing where you like, you pop it out while you're yeah, while, while you're singing? Awesome. You like pop it out and like <laughs> pump up the crowd. No, I mean that's uh, obviously well, it's Catholic underground, crowd, so it's not the but, right thing yeah. to do. But <laughs> but I did take. Well, there were times where I had to take it out because if we were going only voices, you know. Um, I wanted to be able to hear everybody and make sure that I was kind of in t- in in time with them. Yeah. Um. But it was so special. Um. And I've I've played with some of the friars several times, you know. But to do it in Catholic Underground, that's like the, I don't know, that's like the place, you know. That's. I cool. said it to my wife. I was like, Renee, I made it to the big time. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. Catholic Underground. <laughs> Where was it? It was. On top of the ground, it was an underground. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we were definitely not in a but, basement, but it was cool, no, nevertheless. Yeah. yeah, it was cool, nevertheless. That's um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. How about you? Did you have you played in some cool venues? Uh, no, I've not. I've not played in cool venues. One, so there's uh, my my dad. I remember you playing at Trinity Catholic High School. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, great venue, great venue. <laughs> um, no, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two things. One was. Uh, my dad, uh, as a musician, as a folk musician, uh, every year would would go to different things, different events, and everything. Sort of this festival, and he brought me with him. And uh, he and I were were sitting at this. Uh, he had a booth there for something, and so we're sitting there. And, and the booth next to us, there's a guy named Alan Block uh, who was selling. Uh, I don't remember what he was selling, but anyway, he he was there, and he's like a craft guy and everything. Well, he also happened to have owned the store in Greenwich Village where Bob Dylan first played in New York. Wow. And so he goes, hey, we're going to play a song for Alan. And so Alan comes over, and he sits with us, and we play a song for him, and we'd like kind of taken a traditional tune, and we like messed around with it. And <laughs> he goes, that's not how you're supposed to do it, you know? <laughs> he, like, he didn't like our version that we had messed with so it was, okay we can't do traditional music for him because he's he's not gonna like that we we put a twist to it but we right, had fun right, right. we had fun in any case uh, right, but right. the the other one it's not musical performance uh and i would i would never call a preaching a performance but i had the chance uh i was in london and i i got to london and i was staying at a church in soho called saint patrick's and the priest who I was staying with was really sick and he had an evening mass the day I arrived. And he said, is there any chance you could take the mass? I said, sure. He goes, don't worry about giving a homily. I know you've been traveling, so don't, don't feel like you have to do anything. I said, okay. So I get there and the sacristan asked me what I was going to preach about. And I said, well, I just arrived. I didn't really have anything prepared. And he goes, father, you see that? And he points to the pulpit. I said, yeah. He goes, Fulton Sheen used to preach there every time he came to London. 
I go, well, I guess I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to preach from the same pulpit as Fulton Sheen. So you better believe I came up with a homily super fast and I got up and I I gave a homily from the same pulpit as Fulton Sheen. And that was cool. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. We've got this great benefit coming up March 15th for Malta House of Good Counsel. Mark Schultz, our guest today on The Tangent, is going to be performing uh, at the Quick Center in Fairfield at Fairfield University. You should go. I agree. They should go. And also, I should go. I should go, too. <laughs> I should go, too. I'm going to have to find find space on that calendar and make it happen. Yeah. So good. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. See you next time, Father. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to further support The Tangent, please consider subscribing or following on your preferred platform, following us at the Tangent underscore Catholic on Instagram, or even donating at VeritasCatholic.com. See you next time. God bless.